Hello, it's Thursday, February the 3rd, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... Why should women have to shave their legs? Is it just to please men? Also, sex addiction. It's real, apparently, and it can be a medical condition, according to a new study from a university. Russia. Is it going to unleash a cyber attack against Britain because of our support for the Ukraine? But first, the Chancellor has finally told us what he's going to do about the looming energy crisis. £350 of taxpayer support, but most families' bills are going to go up by almost £700. So is it enough? So the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has finally revealed what the government plans to do about the looming cost of living crisis, not least caused by the huge hike in fuel. The energy cap is being lifted by April and we think that households will be facing an increase of around £695 in their annual bill. So the Chancellor says the majority of households will receive £350 of support to remove what he calls the sting from the energy crisis. It'll be through council tax rebates for households in bands A to D and an upfront discount on bills which will be achieved through loans to the energy companies. Critics of the Chancellor say, however, that higher bills are going to remain for a lot longer because those loans to energy companies will have to be repaid by the consumers. Katie Schumacher is the Deputy Director of Policy and Partnerships at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Katie, uh, look, nobody says it's the government's fault that gas prices have soared so much, um, but this has been a long time coming. We know what's been happening with Russia and the Ukraine. There's been a huge surge in demand caused by countries emerging from the pandemic. Uh, do you think the Chancellor has done anything like enough today? Well, yes. I mean, this has felt like something of a slow motion disaster, hasn't it? We've known for a long time that yeah. this huge rise to uh, to bills is coming. And what has been confirmed today is that there will be a huge shock to people's incomes as energy bills go up by almost £700 on average. Now, the help that has been announced today, frankly, is going to be cold comfort to people who are already um, on the lowest incomes, those who are already rationing the amount of heat that they're using, rationing the amount of food that they are buying. The package that was announced today adds up to £350. That's only half of the typical rise to bills. Clearly, there is a huge chasm there that low-income households are simply not going to be able to fill. There's still talk, but um, it seems the government are, are, are ruling it out, that a cut in VAT on fuel, KT, would probably cut chop at least another £100 off people's bill, which would be helpful. And, of course, if they chopped uh, the VAT off commercial companies' bills, they pay up to 20% VAT, that would even help depress inflation because, you know, absolutely those companies are going to pass those price increases on to the consumer. Well, I think what we need to see is a much more laser-like focus on helping the worst-off families yeah. and making sure that the amount of money is enough to actually protect people from the very serious hardship that people are going to, are going to feel as a result of this. I mean, we've done some analysis looking at the amount of disposable income that people's energy bills will be eating up, even with this help. Yeah. And for a you know, single adult who lives on their own, who's on a low income, 40% of their disposable income is still going to be eaten up for their, by their energy bills, even after this help's been in place. So what we need to see is help that really targets those at the very bottom if we're going to protect people 
from hardship. And, you know, we're already seeing food bank use rising. We're already seeing debt advice in demand. We're already seeing arrears on bills going up. And that's before we've seen the spike in energy bills. The other thing, um, uh, and uh, I'm sure I didn't listen to all of what the opposition had to say, but it's all very well to talk about £350 worth of support to remove the sting from the energy crisis. But in April, uh, through a decision of this same Chancellor Rishi Sunak, they're putting up national insurance, which is insanity in my view. They're also freezing personal tax allowances, which is going to directly affect people again. And the national insurance increase would disproportionately, I would argue, hit poorer families Wealthy pensioners, for instance, don't pay, uh, don't pay national insurance. People who pay through companies don't pay national insurance. People who pay through dividends don't pay national insurance. Well, I think um, you know, there may well be a debate to be had about national insurance and how good a mechanism that is for, for raising funds for the NHS and for social care. Mm. But I think really in the context of this energy crisis, it's a little bit of a distraction really because whilst it is paid by lower income workers, it is a progressive a broadly progressive tax so they pay less of their income in national insurance and the kind of hit that they're going to see to their incomes as a result of increase the increase in national insurance is i mean it's tiny compared to the scale of the energy price rises we're going to see so i think it's a it's it's a separate debate right. to be honest and i think okay. it's a bit of a distraction from the uh, the emergency that is going to face people as those energy bills go up and the amount of help that is available to them well short of uh, of making up the difference uh, and uh, the resolution foundation you know them well are talking about a cost of living catastrophe caused by the energy bills what would the joseph roundtree foundation ideally have wanted to hear the chancellor say today if you if 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 he'd accepted your blueprint your proposals what else would have been done today that hasn't been done well we were hoping to see um support more in the region of at least 500 pounds going to um, households through a targeted um, support measure that would go to people who are on universal credit, on legacy benefits, on pension credit, those means-tested benefits that go to the worst off in our society. And for that you know, to be at an amount that is actually enough to protect people from the hardship that will otherwise come about as a result of this increase in their bills. The other thing is, finally, Katie, um, these energy bills could stay this high for a very long time there's no rhyme or reason why gas bills should suddenly start falling and god forbid anything goes up goes kicks off in the ukraine uh, the gas bills i imagine will go even higher because you know russia is such a major supplier yeah i mean it's a really good point i mean effectively part of the package today is a is a buy now pay later sort of yeah. scheme whereby um you're going to get a 200 pound rebate in your energy bill in october and that's going to be paid back over time that is a gamble that prices are going to fall in future. Um, and, you know, people, as, as I've said, already can't afford it. And so, um, so thinking they'll be able to just pick up the cost in a year or two's time uh, seems, um, seems very optimistic. Um, and I think the, the, other, the other point here is we know this isn't going to go away. People are talking about a further rise to the cap of £400 in October. So we need to be getting ready now for that so that we're not cobbling together a sort of last minute response. There, the government has plans to reform um, the warm home discount, which helps yeah. people on low incomes with their energy bills. A lot of the sorts of reforms that they've got in mind for that are the right sorts of things to be doing. They need to get on with that so that it's ready in time for October. And actually, they really need to look at the amount of support that is delivered through that. It's currently £140. It's meant to be going up to £150. 
in the face of the sorts of energy price rises we're seeing, that's simply not enough. And if you consider it kept, when it came in in 2010, the warm, home, the warm homes discount, it was £130. It's only gone up £10 in 12 years already. So it's fallen, exactly. way, fallen way behind in terms of inflation. Absolutely right. All right, that's Katie Schumacher. She's the Deputy Director of Policy and Partnerships at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free in full, along with our podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. A fascinating piece in the Daily Mail today, uh, talking about how Russia is one of the world's notorious centres for cybercrime. In the mail, Kieran Martin, Professor Kieran Martin, who's former chief executive of the National Cyber Security Centre, warned that if relations between Britain and Russia deteriorate, the gangster President Vladimir Putin will unleash cybercriminal thugs who are quietly tolerated by the Kremlin. Delighted to say Professor Martin joins me now. Uh, We've already, presumably, Professor Martin, uh, upset the president because we've sent substantial uh, military hardware, anti-tank weaponry to the Ukraine. We've sent uh, military staff to train the Ukrainians in how to use them. Boris Johnson has talked tough about serious sanctions if a single toe cap, as he put, put it, from Russia crosses the Ukrainian border. So are we already at risk of uh, a cyber retaliation? Well, even before any of this, we were at risk from Russian cyber crime. Indeed, last year, a group of about 50 schools in London run academies run by the Harris Federation fell victim to it and there was severe disruption elsewhere in Western Europe and in the US as well. Um, I think um, what a lot of people in the cybersecurity world are speculating about is that in the event of things getting even worse in Ukraine that the Putin regime will start to launch sort of cyber spectaculars against the West. And I think that's unlikely, at least in the at least in the short term, the sort of thing that Hollywood makes movies about, you know, disrupting, uh, turning the lights out and, and, and that sort of thing and um, causing absolute um, mayhem. Um, so what I'm trying to do is to say that, look, that that's unlikely. It might well happen, indeed, it has happened before in Ukraine itself, but Putin is probably no more likely to do that in the short term than he is to... Um, hurt us in, in other ways that would be very, very provocative. But there are other ways in which that are more deniable and the, the harboring of cybercrime is one of them. And um, cybercrime really flourishes in Russia. So this horrible thing called ransomware, you may have heard of it, where criminals uh, hack into a network, lock you out and then demand money. Just across the Irish Sea in the Republic of Ireland last year, the entire national healthcare system fell victim to it, causing really, really serious and unpleasant uh, disruption. Now, the point is, none of these cyber criminals, or very few of them, um, are in the UK, very few of them are anywhere in the European Union, very few of them are in North America, because police just wouldn't let them operate. But Russia, as a sort of um, a partly criminal state, uh, lets them uh, flourish there so long as they don't uh, interfere with Russian interests. Now, sometimes it becomes convenient to clamp down on them, and President Biden was putting Putin under a lot of pressure last year uh, to clamp down on them, and, and they sort of did a little bit, and they made some arrests even even last month. But what you can now visualize is that if Putin takes grave umbrage at some of the things that the Prime Minister might do, the US President might do, all their allies might do, that they just completely turn on these cybercrime taps and they say, look, we don't really care what you do. You can cause as much damage as you can. So that's the sort of thing that I'm worried about at this time of tension. 
Why are they so, I, I don't know if this is the right expression, Professor, why, but why are Russia so good at it is the wrong expression. Why are they so effective at it is probably a better way to phrase it. Because they're allowed to be. So if you think of a cybercrime organization as an organization, it needs stability. So it needs people. And you look at the sort of functions, you need some skilled computer operators, but you need money launderers, you need, frankly, business planners, you need all sorts of things to make the organization work. Now, this is all crime. It's stealing money, it's disrupting healthcare, it's disrupting education, it's disrupting local governments, disrupting businesses, so it's, cri- it's criminal behavior. So you can't have an organization in that, of that size operating out of London or Oxford or wherever because the National Crime Agency or the local police would just stop it. So if you have um, a country like Russia, which, to be fair, has lots of skilled computer operatives, you know, there is there are cyber skills in Russia, but there are in the UK too, we just don't allow them to be put to large-scale criminal enterprises. And then you can see, and, and also we are hindered in what we can do against them because they don't have to leave Russia's shores in order to uh, in order to cause us harm. You know, for the first time in human history, uh, you can cause large-scale criminal harm to another country without ever setting foot uh, in it. So um, it's it's the sort of safe haven that Russia allows, combined with some skills, that means that there are, uh, that that cybercrime is allowed to flourish. And if you look at the piece in the paper, and this is yeah. my work, this is work from both um, male journalists and BBC journalists, mm. you know, there are some uh, spectacular photographs of sort of playboy cyber gangsters spawning around in uh, Russian cities in flash cars and so forth. It's a lucrative business that the that the Kremlin regime allows. Tell me this, Professor, Do does the British state in the form of MI6 or the shadowy world of intelligence services, do we ever countenance doing it back to them in the name of the state? Would, it, would we ever know if we'd done it? Could, would, would the state have the capability to strike back? Well, that's a pretty awkward and, uh, set of questions. Not only is complicated, but also... I couldn't comment on um, on operations, but so I mean the difference between Russia and the UK for a start. One is that the way the UK does this thing uh, does these things, even if we don't talk about um, cyber operations, uh, the laws that govern them are very clearly set out. So um, yeah, we wouldn't. Um, I don't think it would be lawful uh, to have sort of retaliatory action against random Russian civilians. You know, would we disrupt a bunch of schools in Moscow? I don't see how that would be proportionate. Um, um, uh, and so forth. So again, that's one of the difficulties. That's one of the asymmetries. So you don't really necessarily fight cyber with cyber. You know, you try and. Um, I mean, one of the things that people have tried to do is you try and freeze them. You try and go after the money. So you know, you chase after the Bitcoin wallets. You try and freeze assets and 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 so forth. And other thing is you try and indict the people. So even if they don't, um, you can find them to Russia. Now Russia is a big place, but Russian people with money may want to go abroad, and they can't if there's an arrest warrant from the US or the UK um, after them, and so on. So um, and there are options in terms of if you think about firing back in cyberspace, and the Americans have disclosed they've done a bit of this, and you know, the UK has hinted they've done a bit of this and are willing to do more. And the way we could use our cyber capabilities is against their networks, against criminal networks, not by symmetrically retaliating against, you know, Russian civilians. But, you know, these things need um, computer networks. They need sort of digital infrastructure. They need bots, for example, um, a botnet, sorry. Uh, and you can destroy, you, you, you can destroy those. And that, that, that there have been some operations that, um, uh, of, of, of that kind, and some of them have been quite successful. 
challenge is, you know, they're 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 tactical. Sometimes they're very effective, but they're they are tactical. You know, for as long as Russia tolerates this, then somebody else will spring up again in the future, or they'll rebuild their networks and have another go. Very sensible advice, Professor. That's Kira Martin, Professor Kira Martin, who's the founding chief executive of the National Cyber Security Centre. Thanks for joining us. Uh, visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, and our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Sex addiction. Apparently it's real. Not just real, it's even a medical condition. That's according to a new study from the University of Cyprus. Men with sex addiction have higher levels of oxytocin, the so-called love hormone, which boosts bonding. That's according to this university study. Dr Thaddeus Burchard is the founder of the Marylebone Centre and the founder of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity. And he joins me now. Dr Burchard, thank you for joining us. We talk here about men with sex addiction having higher levels of oxytocin. What about women? Do they have sex addiction too? Well, yes, they do, but not in very great numbers. Right. Why it's men... much more around women. It's much more around relationships. Okay, so why is it more likely that a man is going to have the love hormone? Well, both the sexes have both hormones, both right. oxytocin and vasopressin, but oxytocin dominates in women and vasopressin dominates in men, particularly when they're being sexual. Right. Uh, and is it a medical condition in your view? Well, it's in the International Classification of Diseases, which is the kind of medical Bible for the world. Right. It's, list, it's, it's listed in that, I think, as an impulse control disorder. And it's been claimed that up to one in ten men are sex addicts. Do you accept that figure? Is that the figure is that high? Well, I've seen the figure of six percent. Right. But I've seen that figure used over and over again, but I've never been able to trace where it comes from. So I think it's something that came out of somebody's head, and other people have copied it. I get you. Now, what and is it's very difficult to distinguish between what's kind of unruly yeah. male sexual behaviour and what's addiction. Right. And you've looked at the study. What is it telling us that, that perhaps people like me didn't know, but perhaps confirms what you've always known? Well, I think the study is a very small number of people. Right. And therefore, it, it, it would be difficult to think of it as having any kind of reliability. It's only about 50-odd people. 64 men, 64 yeah. men. You know, you would need studies of thousands right. for anything reliable to emerge. Yeah. If somebody comes to you with sex addiction, how do you define how do you define whether your patient is a sex addict? <laughs> I take them through the four criteria. Right. One it feels out of control. Right. Two people try to stop but they can't stay stopped. Right. It brings with it harmful consequences. Yeah. And the fourth one, which is the crucial one, the behavior has a function. And its usual function is to relieve an alternative negative feeling state. Right. In other words, I'm bored. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll look at the Internet. Yeah. Or I'm stressed. I know what I'll look at the Internet. And, and is a lot of the, 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 the men who, who, who have this condition, is that how they sate themselves by looking at the Internet because easy access to porn? Uh, or are they going off get, sleeping with endless having ca endless casual relationships or extramarital yeah, affairs? Yeah. It, it, it varies from person to person. Some people seem to be significantly, let's I'll use the word, addicted to the Internet, right. which is a very addictive medium. 
Right. Uh, and they're often addicted to computer games at the same time, which is yep. another very addictive medium. Uh, some people uh, use sex workers. Some people have serial affairs. Some people don't have very many, but they feel so guilty about them, they take on the label of sex addict. Right. Now, men with a sex addiction, also known as hypersexual, which is also known as hypersexual disorder, where they're found to have more oxytocin in their blood than those without it, is that something that you would say can be treated chemically, or is it all about treating this in the mind, Dr. Bishop? I I, I, uh, have very serious doubts about treating it chemically around, let's say, the reduction of, uh, uh, of oxytocin. Oxytocin is, the, as I've said, the chemistry of bonding. And if you uh, reduce the oxytocin in some way, that's going to limit men's capacity to bond with wives and children. And, and I hadn't realised, perhaps I should have, the World Health Organisation has declared this sort of behaviour, sex addiction, a mental illness. Yeah, that, it's a, is it's that, a, is that right? classification of diseases. I think it's F52 something. I can't remember the exact designation. Mm. And have you noticed, Doctor, in your career that we're becoming, uh, I say we, I'm talking about the male race here, <laughs> not me, not you. <laughs> have you noticed that more, more of us men are becoming sex addicts? And, and is that in part because of the Internet? No, I don't think uh, becoming more sex addicts. I think uh, uh, male sexuality has always been unruly. I mean, history is littered with people who've collapsed. Uh, because of their sexuality. You might call them sex addicts, or you might just call them male sexuality. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that would be my thought about that. And how do you cure it? Well, we have a behavioral change program, and it, it's, we call it uh, a treatment program, but actually it's not therapy. Uh, I mean, not in any kind of uh, um, uh, general way we think about it. It's a, a very specific program of behavioral change, and it works. We've got done the outcome studies. We get good outcomes, uh, and uh, uh, it's really a series of do this, do that, and do the other. Right. And, of course, the big thing is just understanding. If you have an understanding of what's going on, uh, it doesn't govern you so much as what you don't understand. How interesting. Fascinating. It is very interesting. Really interesting. <laughs> Dr. Bershaw, we're going to have to get you back, Dr. Bershaw, because I think this is really interesting. Uh, that's Dr. Thaddeus Bershaw, who's founder of the Marylebone Centre and the founder of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity, talking about this new study. So it's that time of the programme. We're talking all matters business and we're talking to Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, the group business editor at the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. Ruth, all eyes, of course, are on the Chancellor in the Commons announcing uh, aid for families who are going to be grappling with these huge fuel increases. But on the same day, the Bank of England raising interest rates again. What have they gone up to and how, and how is that going to impact on our lives? Yep. So they're calling it Black Thursday, Andrew, and there's a reason for that. You mentioned the energy costs and the action that the Chancellor's taken to help. But we've also seen Andrew Bailey, he's the Governor of the Bank of England, preside over an interest rate rise. This is the first back-to-back interest rate rise. There was one um, last time as well since 2004. Rates have gone up now from 0.25% to 0.5%. And one of the things that's quite interesting is there's a nine-person committee who sets interest rates. 
and four of them voted to go even higher, to go to 0.75%. Now, you, you, you might ask, well, why do they want to do this? It's quite simple. They're forecasting that inflation is going to go up to 7.25% by April, and they need to put interest rates up, they feel, to stop inflation getting out of hand. For those listeners who have forgotten, the inflation target is 2%. So we're running way, way over that. Um, And traders on the markets today are betting on future rises. So we're expecting interest rates to go up to um, 1.5% by November. So that's a big increase. Now, the impact that's going to have on people's mortgages is you know, that's going to be quite painful. Yeah. And it comes as um, fuel prices are soaring. National insurance is rising. uh, The personal allowances are being frozen on our income tax in April. All the more reason, in my view, Ruth, why I think that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister tineered in that joint joint article this week saying the national insurance rate rise will go ahead. I I could not agree with you more. Um, I think that um, this, this... this national insurance increase is unnecessary. I think it's actually quite cruel um, to, to hit people with this at, at, at this particular time. And, you know, it's not just people like us saying this. Um, it's people, very respected think tanks like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, mm. whose whole life is devoted to analysing the fairness of of taxes and, and the tax situation. And, you know, they're saying that, that there is no need to do this at the moment. The government finances are not in a good state, but they are slightly better than had been um, expected. So we can afford to wait a little a little while before doing this. Um, and, you know, I think it is just going to hit people really hard um, at a time when they can when they can least afford it. I suppose just finally, Ruth, on interest rates, we always think about people with mortgage rates, people who've got loans, but there are, of course, those people listening who are often pensioners who've got savings who might now even see, they might even get a little bit of interest on their hard-earned savings. Well, wouldn't that be lovely if that happens? Um, I would just say, don't hold your breath. That's exactly what I thought, yeah. Um, You know, the, the sad truth is that I think banks and building societies won't be pushing through big increases on savings rates. And Certainly nothing like you You would have to, if the Bank of England's correct, you're going to have to be making more than 7% just to keep up with inflation. Yeah. So if you're not getting an interest rate at that level, then you're in real terms losing money on your savings, you're losing spending power. Um, you're certainly not going to get that. So savers have been the forgotten casualties ever since the financial crisis all those years ago. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, Andrew. I think you're probably right. That's Ruth Sunderland, uh, the group business editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Thanks for joining us. So it's a society where we're accustomed to piercings, body art, daring outfits, but is it the last taboo for a woman to display something we're all born with? Basically, hair. Um, Should women shave their legs? Should they shave under their arms? And if they should, 
who says so? Flora, the writer Flora Gill has taken this issue on in the mail today and has written an absolutely fascinating piece. Flora, you were talking about the actress Ramona Marquez who uh, played five-year-old Karen in Outnumbered. She's now 20. There she was on Instagram, people talking about her red hair, her tattoos. But then, of course, social media was alive to talk about the thick coating of hair on her legs. Yeah, exactly. Somehow we expected her to have the same amount of body hair on her as she did when she was five, or at least to make sure that she'd prepped herself to appear to have the same amount of body hair. I mean, it just seems absurd that there is so much outcry. It's still so ridiculous when it's something just completely natural. And I don't, I don't think the question is whether women should be doing one thing or should be doing the other, but it's just that they should have the choice yeah. and that one of those decisions shouldn't cause such outcry. Yeah, I loved I loved your revelation when you were you were a teenager, fourteen. You were going to take part in the hurdles, school sports day. Two girls in your year pointing at your legs, giggling in mock horror because they'd seen you had um, some some fluffy hair on your legs. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it. I don't think I'd ever really looked down the road. I wasn't really interested in boys at that point, or I wasn't I wasn't trying to attract anyone, and I I just never really thought that, especially some of my peers, some of my classmates would, would find it so funny and so hilarious that I would have to get rid of it. I thought all I'd have to do was stretch in preparation for sports day. Um, but then, then you kind of learn, because none, none of these are things that you're, you're born with. You're not born thinking, oh, this leg hair's going to be disgusting. It's things that you're taught. You have to yeah. learn what is and isn't appropriate according to society. Yeah, and I wonder who sets those rules. I wonder if it's men or women. Yeah, I think they are often shaped by, by men. I think they're shaped... I mean, one of the things that I, I spoke about is, is that uh, it's interesting that a lot of the fashion for hairlessness... I mean, hairlessness, hairlessness goes in and out of fashion yes, through of society. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Cleopatra made shaving your head, for example, for a woman very in fashion and very cool. Um, but interestingly, one of the things that kind of pushed for women to shave their legs was the brand Gillette just trying to sell more razors, which is so often the case in the beauty yes, industry. These, these trends that we think are yeah. our own are actually pushed on us for profit. Um, yeah. But now it's definitely something that, that both men and women have preferences for. But I think a lot of people do end up uh, doing it, shaving or waxing or whatever, in order to not detract men or not, not repel men. Yeah. Now, do you think the big thing for you about no longer feeling you have to shave your legs or let or underneath your arms was the horror of waxing and the pain that involves, or you just frankly couldn't be bothered anymore, or a bit of both? It, it is. I'm I'm always surprised by how painful it is. To be honest, I mean, I know if you do it more, it it gets less painful, which isn't thing. I think to be honest, it was I started to get a bit lazy and then found I wasn't really getting repulsed by it anymore and started to question why i was getting repulsed by it but i mean as you say it's like it's like the final taboo the final yeah the final issue i mean we, we just never see women with with hairy legs or hairy armpits or anything on television in the media no matter what the circumstance it just seems absurd that we'll have you know zombie movies and dystopian futures where everyone's walking around covered in blood and mud and just trying to stay alive and yet we'll never go as far as to show any of the women with any hair where it shouldn't be that that just seems too extreme even a dy- in a dystopian nightmare you'd find the time to shave 
Yeah. Uh, you tell this lovely story too. You're out for lunch with your grandma at the Walsley restaurant in uh, Piccadilly. Uh, she leans over to the next table. Bond girl Gemma Arterton's there. She's been Joan of Arc on stage. Your grandmother says, I thought your portrayal of Joan was fabulous, but you really shouldn't have shaved your armpits for the role. Do you think Joan of Arc would have shaved them? I, it's a great question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I was pretty mortified. Of course you were. That's it, the point of grandparents. We love them, but they regularly embarrassed us. Exactly, exactly. But again, that's it's a perfect example. There's no way. I, I mean, I imagine I don't want to speak for Joan, but no. I, I very much doubt that she was shaving her armpits. And I imagine whoever did the costumes for that Joan of Arc production pro- probably put a lot of work into making sure that the the costume was appropriate or accurate or you know what they wanted but but again the underarm hair was a, was a step too far and my grandma was shorter to, to bring it up although I, I don't think Gemma had much response just just lots of words probably lots yeah. of words exactly uh, and, and just finally here Fiona I mean you make the point it was as far back in 1915 Gillette invented the first razor for women running adverts that referred to unsightly and objectionable hair here we are now, uh, more than 100 years later, and that is still the problem women face, that a lot of people think on women it's unsightly and objectionable. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think that it's fine if, if, if any woman wants to shave, wants to wax, wants to do any of those things. You know, I, don't have, I obviously am not trying to say you must burn your razors in order to be a feminist. That's completely fine. It's up to you. Lots of people like, you know, the feel of their shaven legs in their sheets Mm. or just like having smooth legs but it just seems absurd that it seems unhealthy to me to have a repulsion to something that is so natural you can have a choice just like you know if you want to wear lots of makeup or you don't want to wear lots of makeup it's completely up to you but it just seems not good for anyone's view on themselves to, to, to have such strong feelings against it fabulous to talk to you that's flora gill who's written a really fabulous entertaining and it's full of facts in there about why she has decided she's not going to shave her legs or under her arms and why should she that's all we've got time for today for the latest from the daily mail download the mail plus app every weekday at 5 p.m you can listen to me all over again i'm andrew pierce this is the andrew pierce show i'll be back tomorrow have yourselves a great evening and good night (laughs) 